Our reading for today is Matthew 8, verses 28 to 30. Please rise for reading God's word. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to find. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, reading, uh, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We're starting a new series uh, today entitled, I Did It Thy Way. And uh, I will explain what this is going to be about. Been thinking about this for, for some time and uh, just seems to fit in good right now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house. It's always so encouraging to be in your presence, to be with your people, and to, uh, to know that none of us are alone. We all can count on your presence. We can count on our brothers and sisters bearing our burdens. And so we can look ahead to this new year with, uh, with confidence and with true godly hope because uh, you already know what's going to happen. And you say to us, do not let your heart be troubled, but to trust in you. So we want to do that. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray that you would uh, guide us into a deeper understanding and experience of what this means. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is what uh, 2018 looks like. Now we know. And after three full weeks, how are you doing with your New Year's resolutions? One of my goals is to lose 20 pounds. So far, so good. I'm encouraged. I only have 25 pounds to go. <clears throat> now, I don't know if this is going to be a good year, but I've had a really good week. Partly because the Pittsburgh Steelers were eliminated from the playoffs last Sunday. So the universe is unfolding as it should. I've already uh, congratulated Lyndon on the miracle in Minnesota. That was unbelievable. For Vikings fans, this could be the best year ever. But of course, there's no guarantee. If you're a passionate sports fan, one devastating loss can ruin your whole year. And for months afterwards, it'll be cloudy with a chance of mothballs. And really, that's how it is with most of us. We can be to get excited about a new year. We can look forward to special occasions that are planned but we don't know if we're going to encounter a series of unfortunate events that could spoil everything. So much depends on the circumstances. Some of you remember Frank Sinatra singing, when I was 17, it was a very good year. Well, when was the last time you had a very good year? How long has it been? Well, for the nation of Israel, it wasn't left up to chance or circumstance. 
For them, every year was kind of filled with dangers, toils, and snares. In fact, it's still like that over there. And so if it depended on their circumstances, they would never have a good year. Except for one thing, Israel's best years didn't just happen, they were pre-programmed. God established a divine rhythm to their lives so that celebration transcended their circumstances. For example, every week culminated in the Sabbath day. And that didn't just happen in good weeks, but also difficult weeks. The Sabbath was like a weekly faith lift. It reminded them God was in control, that he cared, and that his promises would be fulfilled. So the Sabbath provided a buoyancy that overcame the undertow of difficult circumstances. It's what we experience when we come to church. It doesn't matter how frustrated I am. It doesn't matter how disappointed I am. Worship always restores my soul. And so after six days, they celebrated the Sabbath. It was the best day of the week. And then every seven years was a sabbatical year. And it says in Leviticus chapter 25, beginning with verse 1, The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourselves, your manservant, your maidservant, and the hired worker and the temporary resident who live among you as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. It was an interesting idea. You know, we think it all depends on us. Well, the Sabbath year, you just basically stop pushing and straining and striving and succeeding and just let God look after you. But we'll starve no, God's got this. Just trust him. It was a radical experiment in faith. And then, after seven Sabbath years, came the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years was a Jubilee. And it was the best year ever. And it had nothing to do with their circumstances. This was God's invitation to the Hebrew nation to experience life at its best, to transition away from I did it my way to I did it thy way. And though it was specifically applied to the Israelites living in the promised land, it has a lot of relevance to our experience as followers of the Lord. So we're going to spend the next three weeks studying the description of the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. And I know what you're thinking. Leviticus? Are you kidding? Can anything good come from Leviticus? 
When you read through the Bible in one year, many just kind of fast forward past Leviticus. It's like driving through southern Saskatchewan. You don't really pay attention to the scenery. There's no tour bus that stops out of sight of swift currents so the tourists can take pictures of a stubble field. It's just miles and miles of nothing but miles and miles. That's Leviticus. Except this book may just contain some rich soil that could yield a crop 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And of course, one of the reasons for doing this is because this year is the 50th anniversary of worship and fellowship in this building. And that's significant because a lot of churches have closed down in the last 50 years. But Thornhill is still going strong. And I think that's happening for two reasons. First of all, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's not that they haven't tried. They have, but they did not overcome it. And number two, you have been faithful in believing his promise and you have not gotten discouraged or given up regardless of the circumstances. 50 years is a significant milestone. It's a celebration of victory. And it doesn't matter if you've been here for half a century or half a month. We all have the opportunity to experience a jubilee, the best year ever. So let me tell you how it happens. Verses 8 and 9 of Leviticus 25. Count off seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbaths of the year amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout the land. The first thing we notice about the year of Jubilee is that it began with repentance. It was on the day of atonement. That was the day the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and atone for the sins of the nation. Warren Wiersbe writes this, The year of Jubilee began with repentance because there is no joy until sin is confessed. While sinners manufacture happiness in order to escape sin, Christians receive satisfying joy by facing sin honestly. There is no joy until sin is confessed. And according to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, there's two ways of dealing with sin. And the first one is the, the way we see our society deal, deal with it. In our society, we're obsessed with entertainment. And one of the reasons is because it's the most effective diversionary tactic we have. That's how we escape from dealing with our terminal condition. That's why most Canadians will not go to church on Sunday morning. Because this is not an escape. This is where we're confronted with the reality of our guilt. At church, they remind us that we are sinners. That we have ignored God. That we have disobeyed and disrespected him, that we have lived selfishly. Every one of us has this tendency of turning away. And for that sin, there are consequences, serious consequences, eternal consequences. 
But we don't want to think about that, so we try to amuse ourselves. But the pleasures of sin are a local anesthetic that tranquilizes our guilt only temporarily. So when the effect wears off, we have to increase the dosage until finally we develop a tolerance, and then we have to face the emptiness of despair. As Proverbs 14:12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a better way. Instead of making excuses, instead of covering up our sin, God invites us to repent. In 1 John chapter 1, we read this in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's one way of dealing with it. Verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. That's the road that may seem right, but it leads to death. Verse 9 shows us a better way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we cover up our sins, it's like saying, God, I don't believe you. You're a liar. I'm okay. It's all good. So we can cover up our sins, but what we need to do is confess. To repent and say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. I am the liar. I have deceived myself. Repentance should always be item number one under new business. And this is especially true for veterans. Sure, we repented, what, 30, 40, 50 years ago? We don't really do that very much anymore. I mean, what would people think? If you've been a Christian for uh, any number of years, you may have developed a habit of tolerating unconfessed sin which is kind of like undiagnosed cancer. You tolerate things like worry, a critical spirit, a bad habit, or an addiction. See, the problem with sin is that we become desensitized. We don't really know how God looks at it. For us, sin is kind of a spectator sport. We see people like Harvey Weinstein or Bill O'Reilly or Kevin Spacey or Charlie Rose or Matt Lauer experiencing the consequences of sin. And we say, God, thank you that I am not like other men. Or am I? What about us? We simply don't understand how disgusting unconfessed sin is to God, especially when it comes to our grudges. We harbor bitterness in our hearts. We let it build up. And God finds that absolutely abhorrent and nauseating. We have no idea how much God hates sin. Let me try to give you an idea. I once watched part of an episode of hoarders, people who have turned their homes into landfill sites. The only thing worse is hoarders 
who are also cat people. This one lady had three dozen stray cats living in her house. And that's not counting the ones who reached the expiry date of nine lives. I think there were, they found five dead cats in that house. So why were they still there? Well, maybe for sentimental reasons. That was Mr. Montesquieu, my favorite. I mean, she could have taken him to a taxidermist, but she was a procrastinator. She just piled them under her sink. It was absolutely disgusting. It makes your skin crawl. So let me ask you, how many dead cats do you have under your sink? It doesn't take long to become a hoarder of unconfessed sin. We just get acclimatized to it. We don't realize how disgusted God is when he sees that sin in our lives. It stinks to high heaven. There's a biblical word for this. It's called unclean. That's what lepers would call out to warn people to stay back and not come into contact with them. Unclean. That's why repentance is so important. Remember Isaiah when he saw the Lord in the temple? He said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He saw God, and the first thing he realized was how disgusting and nauseating his sin was. It just makes your skin crawl. Ugh! We need to have an understanding of how abhorrent our sin is to God. Peter said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I wonder if we appreciate how serious this is. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.26, he says, Do not, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. If we have bitterness in our hearts, if we have a grudge against someone, there should be no delay. Unless, of course, you have a very good reason, right? I mean, they did something unforgivable. You know, the reason doesn't really matter. We can always come up with good reasons and excuses, but there's a far more important issue at stake here. Whatever your reasons may be, do not subject God to the nauseating, repulsive attitude of bitterness. It's unclean. Don't turn the temple of the Holy Spirit into a haven for stray cats. That's why we need to repent. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive those sins and will cleanse us. What a wonderful word that is. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to come clean. If we don't repent, we will never be spiritually healthy because we're in a toxic environment. That's why we don't really get excited about our faith or we have no desire to tell others about Jesus. That's why there's no joy. 
The key to joy, enthusiasm, and spiritual passion is repentance and forgiveness. Forgiveness releases all this spiritual energy. It's like the woman in Luke 47, where Jesus said, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. You can tell she's experienced a huge amount of forgiveness because there's all this love flowing out. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. So if you want to experience the best year ever, you have to come clean. You have to confess and repent and you have to forgive. Get rid of those dead cats. The year of Jubilee began with repentance. Secondly, beginning in verse uh, 10 to 12, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It should be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is directly from the fields. You see, the year of jubilee was also a time of rest. It was intended to be a time of rest. The year of Jubilee sabotaged the delusion of self-sufficient, busy, purpose-driven people. All the farmers were released from toiling in their fields. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's so risky. We need those crops to survive. That would be irresponsible. We have to stay busy. In the year of Jubilee, human effort was suspended so that people would learn that they weren't indispensable, that God could do it without them. Now, they'd already been practicing that every Sabbath, but in Jubilee, it was extended to an entire year. You see, the biblical proportion is one to seven. One day of rest for every week of toil. Maybe one hour of rest for every seven hours of work. That's the kind of rhythm that restores your soul. In the Jewish culture, no one was busy on the Sabbath. No one was in a hurry. They had time to deepen their relationships with God, to enjoy their relationships with each other. They had time for solitude. And in Jubilee, that was extended for an entire year. And you know what? Nobody starved. The economy didn't fall apart. In fact, the land recovered because letting the land lie fallow had a significant ecological benefit. If you overwork the land, you will exhaust the soil's nutrients and eventually the land will become a dust bowl or a desert. That's what happens when we don't experience peace and rest in our lives. We're just going to burn out. Some of you may have been heading in that direction. You're just going towards something that's going to burn you out. That's what happened to Martha in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. She had an episode like that. Martha was a dedicated, hardworking servant, even when it wasn't necessary. Wow, was she busy. 
That's why Jesus called her Martha, Martha, because she could do the work of two people. She was at least a borderline workaholic. But she took it to such an extreme that it was harming her soul. Martha was having a meltdown. She was not only worried and upset, she was not only filled with self-pity, she had anger towards her sister, and it reached the boiling point. She even questioned the Lord's compassion and straightened him out. Lord, don't you care? Tell her to help me. Wow, that's five major sins in just two verses. And some of us can identify with that. We've been there. That's a classic case of burnout. Martha had no balance in her life. She didn't know when to stop to rest. This was not a healthy reaction. Busy, hardworking, dedicated servants need to experience rest or they'll burn out. I heard one lady's testimony. She said, after 7.30, I'm no longer mom. I become Shirley. So if my kids say, mom, I just say, mom is off duty. I am Shirley, and I'm going to relax now. That's one way of doing it. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, the verses that were read earlier says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I wonder how many of us need that right now. We're not going to find it anywhere else but Jesus. Jesus said, I'll give you rest. But here's how it is. This, here's how it happens. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What are the things that are making you weary and burdened? Well, if that's what's happening in your life, then you qualify for some divine intervention. You are eligible for rest, which involves three things. First of all, come. Come to me, Jesus said. Rest is an invitation to come to Christ. It's, it's not Martha working away in the kitchen, it's Mary. It's Mary sitting at the Lord's feet. Let me ask you, when do you feel closest to the Lord? Where do you feel closest to the Lord? Come, Jesus said, now, come. Secondly, take my yoke. Rest is not inactivity. You don't just sit and do nothing. Take my yoke. Yoke is something that oxen have on their shoulders to pull a burden. Rest is not an activity. What it is, it's taking off our yoke and putting on his. It's shifting the center of gravity. It's transitioning from I did it my way to I did it thy way. Let me explain how this happened in my life. You know, pastors have a real problem with this kind of stuff. Someone said that many pastors enter the ministry because they want to rescue God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into 
and his limited power seems unable to get him out of. Hold on, God, I'm coming. Hang in there. I was like that for many years. I even had one lay leader said, what we need here is a pastor who will crack the whip. So I knew what I needed to do. I needed to mobilize. I needed to maximize. Above all, I needed to motivate, which means I needed to make people busier than they already were. Hold on, God, I'm coming, and I've got reinforcements. Now, whatever that is, it's not rest. So let me tell you about my first experience with rest in the ministry. Through a series of unfruitful events, I learned something about myself. Now, to be fair, I am not Canada's worst driver. I am Canada's worst handyman, but I'm also probably Canada's worst motivator. I'm hopeless in motivating people. Hey, let's have a prayer meeting. Let's go witnessing. Let's start a discipleship program. Let's begin a Christian photo club. I had so many good ideas, but very, very little interest. When it comes to motivation, I am hopeless. I am the worst. But you know something? I'm totally okay with that. In fact, it was a big relief to discover that. Because if the ministry depended on my motivational skills, then I should have quit because I'm just wasting everybody's time. What I found out is it doesn't depend on me. I know that because when I leave a church, it doesn't fall apart. It often does better without me. So that means I don't have to succeed, whatever that means. I just have to find out how God can use me. To try to succeed in the ministry based on a particular set of skills puts enormous pressure on us. It wears us out. It, it's a back-breaking burden. The day that I realized I was an absolutely poor motivator was the first day I began to experience peace and rest. It didn't embarrass me. I didn't feel like a failure. And you know, I couldn't wait to tell people about this. This is an amazing discovery. God, I've heard about this rest, but I could never find it. It was so elusive. I thought if I stayed busy, I'd eventually reach the place where I could experience rest. I didn't realize that it was hidden behind my self-sufficiency. It was there all along. And now that I've found it, I don't want to lose it. That's what the year of Jubilee was all about. People could discover that God was able. All they had to do was understand how they could contribute to what God was already accomplishing. That takes so much pressure off. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, my yoke, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. At no point does Jesus say what you need to do as a pastor is crack the whip. That's not what it's about. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. It's amazing what happens when we shift away from I did it my way to I did it thy way. Jesus said, come to me, take my yoke. And then he says, learn from me. That's about intimacy. That's what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 15, verse 15, when he says, hey, guess what? I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I will call you friends for everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. I want to be somebody who uh, Jesus feels he can reveal things to, so I can learn. We have so much to learn, so much to learn. But if we're so busy, there's no time. There's no way to cultivate intimacy with the Lord when you're in a hurry. Because busy people, busy, busy people do not make good friends. Do you know that? They're great acquaintances, but they don't make good friends because they don't have time. If you want to have a friendship with God, there's two things you have to be prepared for. And busy people can't stand these two things. If you want to have a friendship with God, you have to be willing to wait. And busy people get very impatient with waiting. But when we have a relationship with God, there are many times we have to wait. The second thing is that busy people don't like to be interrupted. It drives them crazy. But if you've got a relationship with God, he is going to interrupt you over and over again. Because the problem is I'm always doing it my way. So God has to interrupt me and say, my ways are not your ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. He's always interrupting me. And if you're busy, you cannot handle that. That just drives you crazy. If you want to develop a deeper relationship with God, you can't be in a hurry. It takes time. The number one obstacle to spiritual growth and maturity is busyness because it never stops. There's always more to do. There is a better way, a balanced way. You work, you put everything into it with all your heart and then you rest. Even if the work isn't totally finished, you rest because the work never is finished. Jesus was the only one who said it is finished. For me, I can always think of one more thing I should have done. No, you stop and you rest. You serve faithfully using your spiritual gifts and then you stop, whether it's finished or not, and then you rest. You obey and then you trust. Isaiah 30, 15 says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. So this is coming from the highest authority. In repentance and rest is your salvation. 
in quietness and trust is your strength. In repentance and rest. After repentance comes what? Well, religion would tell you once you repent, you become part of it, now you have to impress God. With hard work and effort, you've got to have results, you've got to have success. There's all these things you need to be doing. And sometimes our spiritual lives become an amazing race and not amazing grace. In repentance and rest is your salvation. If this is going to be the best year ever, that has to be part of it. That's how it begins. The Israelites were invited to come and experience rest. But you know what that verse also says? In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Now listen to this. But you would have none of it. No. Those terms are unacceptable. Sorry. That's not how we, how we do things. What about you? Would you accept what God offers you, the sovereign one, the holy one? Come to me, learn from me, take my yoke. Do you want to have the best year ever? And first of all, get rid of those dead cats. And secondly, rest. And then wait for further instructions. Let's pray. Father, your way is so different than our way and so much better. Lord, teach us your ways and give us the courage to respond to them. Show us what we need to do Give us the opportunity to uh, experience your forgiveness, to come clean and to offer that forgiveness to those who have done unforgivable things to us. Lord, we want to be clean and we want to know rest. We want to know the, the favor of the Lord we want to know the yoke that is easy and the burden that is light. That's what I'm interested in. So Lord, show us that each individually, personally, as we take time to meditate and reflect and apply it to our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for us to experience the year of Jubilee even now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.